welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor Lacane. Next Tuesday, President Biden will give his first State of the Union address. Our guest today knows a lot about State of the Union addresses, having helped to write some of them. Uh, we want to find out what makes for a good State of the Union address. What happens behind the scenes when developing the speech? And what does President Biden need to do in this address to advance his agenda and help Democrats win the midterm elections this November? Our guest today can answer all these questions and more. David Kuznet was chief speechwriter for former President Bill Clinton during the 1992 campaign and the first two years in the White House. Kuznet was also a speechwriter for former Democratic presidential nominees Walter Mondale and Michael Dukakis. He has written speeches for many leaders in government and politics, labor, business, education, civil rights, and human rights organizations. Kuznet has authored or co-authored five books, including Speaking American, How the Democrats Can Win in the 90s, which was the rhetorical handbook for the Clinton campaign. Also, he wrote, Love the Work, Hate the Job, Why America's Best Workers Are More Unhappy Than Ever, America Needs a Raise, with former AFL-CIO President John Sweeney. And another book, Talking Past Each Other, What Everyday Americans Believe and Elites Don't Get About the Economy. He's also written many articles for leading newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, New Republic, and American Prospect. Kuznet is a freelance speechwriter and consultant. He has been communication director for People for the American Way and field communications director for the Public Employee Union, AFSCME. David Kuznet, welcome to All Together Now. Thank you for having me. So I'm excited to have you here right before President Biden gives his State of the Union address, and you're an expert on this. So I'd like to start off by asking you, what makes for a good State of the Union address? Well, in ordinary times, a State of the Union speech describes a journey that the country is on from the situation before some before the president took office to where we stand now to where the president wants to lead us. And most presidents, when they come in, and this certainly was true of the president I worked for, Bill Clinton, describe a situation where before they came they came in, the country was floundering. And in Bill Clinton's case, he was describing the recession that took place before 1993 under the first President Bush, and really a process of fragmentation, increasing racial and economic inequality, increasing social disconnection and social breakdown, alienation from the political system, and a feeling that the world was changing, technology was changing, international trade was changing, everything was changing, except America's public policies. And it was time to align ourselves with the, for, with the forces of change. And if that sounds familiar, that's not only, I think, the world that 
the situation that Bill Clinton described upon taking office from the first President Bush, but it's also the situation that President Obama described upon taking office from the second President Bush. And really, if you take all the problems to the next degree and then some, it's the situation that under normal, sort of that you can call it the situation as of, let's say, a week ago, normal, that in, in, in the world as it existed a week ago that Joe Biden would describe having taken office after President Trump. And now you're, and in addition, you have the one of the worst international crises since the end of World War II. So we are really in uncharted waters and President Biden needs to give not just the state of the union speech, but really a kind of a state of the world speech describing mm -hmm. how, how we're, we're gonna resist the kind of autocracy and violation of national boundaries that that the, the, that Putin represents and how we're gonna do right by our own people while doing right by the world. That's very sobering, but I think that's very true. Uh, and we see authoritarianism on the rise around the country. Um, this invasion of Ukraine by Putin is deeply troubling. And uh, the rise of authoritarianism here in the United States is even more troubling. So um, that's a very challenging task that you just laid out in terms of how you're going to right, and, and particularly enlarging it, not just the state of the union, but the state of the world. What happens behind the scenes when you're trying to put together that kind of a far-reaching speech with such high stakes? Well, my own experience is in what, in hindsight, were, was relatively tranquil times. I don't know if it seemed that way when we were living through them and when we were working in the White House, but in, compared to where we are now, the 1993-1994 was a, a relatively tranquil period, at least in the world, if not in, in this country. And the, the ordinary procedure with the State of the Union speech is that it tends to come earlier in the year than this one comes. They tend to be delivered at the end of January or early or mid-February. And the process begins at the end of the year before. And it's, 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 it's a, a useful process, not only for gener generating a State of the Union speech, but for, sort of for, but for taking stock on what has happened during the previous year and looking ahead to what the president, the administration want to accomplish in the year ahead. And speeches provide a kind of a discipline because you have to define and explain yourself to the country. And what happens is every cabinet department and agency and White House experts and advisors to deal with the issues that, that the cabinet departments and agencies deal with, they all submit, for want of a better word, lists of what they've accomplished during the previous year and what they want to accomplish during the next year. And simultaneously with that, the president and the president's closest advisors think through what they want to do in the year ahead. And the materials that the cabinet departments and agencies and others send in provide grist for the mill for making the points that the president wants to make about 
the year that's that's been that's passed and the year ahead. And part of what the speechwriters and other staff have to do is a kind of editorial function. It's not so much edit, editing for oratorical excellence, but just editing in terms of what really makes the cut in terms of being worth talking about as an accomplishment and worth talking about as a proposal. And the second challenge is to take those elements and try to weave a coherent narrative out of them. This is where we've been, this is where we are, and this is where we're going. And that, that's the challenge in, in relatively tranquil times. And right now, in addition, the president and therefore the administration are dealing with this crisis in, in, in Ukraine, which is, you know, which potentially could spill over into Eastern Europe and the rest of Europe. So there has to be a, a discussion of what we're doing right here and now to, to deal with that crisis. And also, and I know this is all a mouthful, but unfortunately what, what the world is facing now is, is urgent and complex. The, the president is gonna need to explain how this all came about and how it fits into the larger scope of how we wanna have a better and safer world. Right, well, you, you mentioned gathering all this information about kind of what's been achieved and what the administrative wants to do going forward from all the different agencies and, and government. And um, you mentioned about kind of pulling that together into a coherent narrative. I, how do you do that? I mean, the, the government is massive, the issues are big and wide, and now we've got this whole thing to add it in, the real battle between authoritarianism and democracy around the world, just like coming to blows with Putin invading Ukraine. Uh, how do you make a coherent, compelling speech out of a thousand fragments? Well, I think what you just what you just said, I think, is really the, the starting point and probably the end point for this, that as President Biden said in his inaugural, and as he said in two of his most noticed speeches, the speech he gave on January 6th, on the first anniversary of the insurrection, and the speech he gave about voting rights in, I believe it was Atlanta, Georgia, about a week later, he has really framed the, the overriding question about confronting this country as the survival of democracy against extremism and autocracy in this country and against autocracy and aggression overseas. And the stakes have been raised and become more urgent by the invasion of Ukraine. But clearly he saw something like this coming on the, on the world stage. And we've had terrible and continuing threats here at home. And I, th I think that as he did in the inaugural, as he did in those two speeches, and as he also did in his joint session speech a year ago about his economic program, I think you really can frame it all in that context. So right now, the United States is trying to lead the world's response to the aggression in Ukraine, but and the, the overwhelming crisis facing our country and the world is whether democracy can survive in this country and survive in the world, not just by repelling 
aggression, not just by defeating insurrections, but by showing that democracy can deliver a better life for people here and abroad, and also by showing that it's possible to reverse some of the, the forces, the economic and social and technological forces and the dead weight of the past, which are keeping driving people apart in this country and, and overseas. And I think I think you can tie it. I mean, it's it's, it's easier to say this on a, on a radio show than to set at a keyboard and do it or for the president to come to stand before a podium in the Capitol and do it. But I think you can say that the widening economic inequalities, the persistent racial injustice, the un, and then the impact of the pandemic and the lockdown of the last two years, all of them have fueled extremism, fueled alienation from the democratic process and threatened democracy at, here at home. And similar things have been, under, have been at work around the world and produce autocrats like Putin. Yeah, that's very starkly put and very sobering. And I think you've really put your finger on kind of the angst that's out there now. And, you know, who would have thought in our time after having defeated Hitler in World War II that here we would be in 2022 discussing whether democracy can survive and whether it can beat authoritarianism in the United States and around the world. Uh, yet again, there's a global crisis. And you've identified several of the reasons why authoritarianism is kind of on the rise and the concerns people have. It seems to me one of the core issues is probably the one you mentioned in terms of wealth and income inequality that, you know, the U.S. recognized for decades that in order to prevent authoritarians on the rise around the world, we wanted to make sure that people had a, a chance at a relatively healthy economic life, that they could take care of themselves and their families economically. And if people could not do that, that would pave the way for authoritarians around the world. Now, we in the United States are experiencing extreme wealth and income inequality. We have, you know, the top 1% owns more than 90% of the rest of the people. Do you think that, of course, there's multiple reason, but at the core of it, that we, we will not really defeat authoritarianism in the United States unless we address this extreme inequality. I think that's right. I don't I don't want to I, I don't want to be an extreme economic determinist because clearly a lot of what fuels extremism and authoritarianism in this country and other countries are ancient hatreds that that predate the current you know the industrial and post-industrial society. But I guess to use a crude analogy, it's like, I mean, people can have viruses in them, not, not like the current virus, but viruses in them that are sort of latent and, and flare up when the body is weak. And I think you saw 
in Germany in the 1920s with anti-Semitism and periodically in this country with, with white supremacy and anti-Black racism, both of which are endemic to their respective societies, that they tend to flare up in the worst form when there's economic distress. And that doesn't mean you can say, you can just you know, forgive everybody who has racial or religious bigotry by saying, oh, it's all economic anxiety. And it doesn't mean that, you know, that just rising incomes are the cure for everything, although they don't, they don't hurt. But I, I think it does, whether it's Germany in the 1920s or different parts of the United States throughout our history, when there's economic distress, people, people look for explanations and if they're not given a better explanation, they look for scapegoats and they listen to demagogues. Mm -hmm. And the kind of bigotry that's been there all along tends to flare up. And that's true in this country and it's true in, in other countries. And also people, in that kind of an environment, people are looking for a man on horseback. And that certainly contributes to what you saw in, in Europe in the 1920s and what you're seeing in Russia in the last 20 years. Exactly. And I'm, I'm thinking back to the wisdom of the U.S. leaders back, uh, at, you know, after World War II, when they realized part of why Hitler and fascism took root in Europe was the way that World War II, uh, World War I had been settled, that kind of humiliated and suppressed the German people, and that there was a lot of angst and unhappiness there that was like the tinder that Hitler could kind of draw on to rise people up to his way of acting and thinking that led to World War II. Um, and that the, the American leaders after World War II said, we're not going to make that mistake again. We want to help the countries that we defeated Japan and Germany, we did the, the Marshall Plan and actually helped to rebuild Germany and Japan to the point where now both of them are strong countries. Germany is arguably one of the strongest economies in the world. So we were very successful at doing that for the, the countries that we vanquished in World War II. Somehow, we seem to have forgotten that lesson uh, and that we're not applying what we knew then to our own country uh, and that extreme inequality can lead to extremist action like the the white nationalists uh, and stir up you know leave people vulnerable being stirred up to be looking for scapegoats so I, it just seems to me that unless we address the extreme inequalities of wealth and income we will continue to have problems in the United States around uh, flaring up of race, flaring up anti-Semitism, flaring up anti-religious, like you say, people looking for scapegoats, that there'll be a greater susceptibility among the American people until we address head on these economic inequalities. W would you agree with that? I think that's right. I mean, I think it, it's certainly very dangerous to leave whole parts of our country behind, as has happened in this country, or to leave whole countries behind, as happened with Russia. 
And it's just asking for demagogues and extremists and authoritarians to come along and give people a simple explanation because you haven't given them a better explanation and give people revenge because you haven't given them justice. And I think, I think you're exactly right. If someone probably could write a knowing more than I know and knowing a lot more than I know, could probably write an interesting book about the difference between how we treated Germany and Japan after World War II and the Marshall Plan, as you say, after that devastated Europe and the kind of extreme capitalism that we offered Russia after it lost the Cold War. I mean, I think you, you'd find that after that, with Germany and, and Japan and the devastation in Western Europe, even though those countries had won or at least had, had been liberated, we offered them a kind of social democracy. And at least in Japan, Douglas MacArthur probably doesn't seem like anyone's idea of a social democrat. But I think if you compare what Douglas MacArthur ended up offering in Japan compared to what he stood for in this country are very different. I think, I think, I think the David Halberstam book about the auto industry from the 1970s, and I think he, I think he writes that, that Douglas MacArthur and more plausibly Harry Truman brought Walter Ruther over to Japan to help them revive and build independent unions and build an auto industry and so on. And the Japanese listened more to Walter Ruther than the American Republicans and auto companies listened in this country. And we ended up, hmm. well, it wasn't what Douglas MacArthur is remembered for in this country. We ended up building a, a kind of a capitalism that in its own way cared for and provided for people. And that's certainly what happened in Western Europe, whether it was the Christian Democrats, or the Social Democrats in Germany, or the Christian Democrats in Italy, or the Gaullists in France, they were, you know, they were all over sort of the center left, the center right of the political spectrum. But they built societies that provided for people. And then you compare that with the kind of shock, sort of crisis capitalism, shock capitalism, whatever it's called, that ended up prevailing in Russia when we were advising Boris Yeltsin, and out of that wreckage comes, comes Putin. Yeah, and I'm, uh, I'm thinking as you're talking about this, uh, the importance of the US government delivering for the American people and making our lives better. And you did such a fabulous job um, kind of advising Clinton on what he could do. And certainly the first couple of years, he made some great headway and then seemed to kind of stall a little bit or kind of focus on more small bore issues. But that he had wanted to be a transformational president and wanted to deliver for the American people. Uh, but he ran into some headwinds that are are still there and you uh you wrote this great essay for the los angeles times in 1998 and at the time clinton was about to give his next state of the union address and i just want to mention some of the advice you gave to the president then about what could be done and just notice how incredibly important it is and still relevant. For example, 
expanding Medicare to people 55 years and older, uh, providing childcare for millions more working families, hiring tens of thousands new teachers, raising the minimum wage, exploring a new wage insurance program for workers who are downsized out of their jobs, addressing stagnant living standards and the growing gap between the wealthy and the middle class. That is exactly what the country needed then and it's exactly what the country needs now. Why do you think it is when the brilliant Bill Clinton came in coming out of the working class, lower class, and making it to the White House, why do you think he didn't do those things that you put in front of him to be done? What's, what's sort of scary, since we're now in the second year of, of, a, of another Democratic president, is there is a historic pattern that progressive presidents, I think FDR is a great exception, but other progressive presidents, if they've been able to get anything done, it's been in their first two years. If you look at what President Johnson did in his, in the remainder of President Kennedy's term, and then in his first two years after the, the after being elected on his own. You look at what Bill Clinton did or tried to do in his first two years. You look at what President Obama did in his first two years. And pretty much that's what they are able to do. And reading in particular the history of, of, of Lyndon Johnson, he was very much aware of that. And that was why he just rushed so much through in the first in his first two years, civil rights in his first two and a, you know, two years plus the remainder of President Kennedy's term, the civil rights, voting rights, Medicare, Medicaid. Pell grants for education. The, you know, you can just go through a litany of programs that he that he accomplished, and he lost the midterm elections. The Democrats still had a majority, but at that time you had conservative Southern Democrats, and the conservative Southern Democrats plus the Republicans had a majority after 1966. And I think the only program he was able to get through in his, what turned out to be his final two years, was fair housing after Dr. King's assassination. And of course, he was also, both his political and financial and the country's budgetary resources were strained by the, by the Vietnam War. But he, he could only achieve what he achieved for the most part during his first two years. The same was true with President Clinton, and the same was largely true. I think President Obama's first two years mm -hmm. were far and away his most productive years. So it's it's only disturbing when you think of President Biden that they we're now in his second year, and November looks pretty ominous. So that I think that's part of what of why Bill Clinton wasn't able to do the the things that many of us wanted him to do in. in the final two years of his second term, he was also up against, and this was of his own making, but he was up against the hmm. impeachment brought on by the, by the Monica Lewinsky situation. And he actually lost the control of the House and Senate 
1994, and we, we didn't get it back in the remaining six years. So his most productive two years, if not his most popular two years, were his first two years. So uh, assuming your historical analysis is correct, that the first two years were Democratic presidents have the best shot at making significant impact, we're kind of two months into the second year for President Biden. That window is quickly closing. He, President Biden did amazing things, I believe, in the first year in office. Just, I thought he was the greatest president in my lifetime, that he had come out, he had done the stimulus to help people through the pandemic. He was getting the vaccine out to help people protect themselves from uh, the virus. He put through uh, a major bill, uh, the infrastructure bill that Trump kept talking about all the time, but never did anything about. It was Biden who got a bipartisan infrastructure bill through. And the second part of Biden's package, I thought was fabulous, addressing the issues of childcare and um, transportation and the climate crisis. He was taking on big farmers, taking on the fossil fuel industry, and um, and went getting some wins. But um, then he kind of seemed to hit a wall, and nothing went right. He pulled out of Afghanistan and had some stumbles there. And what do you think happened that he was on such a great trajectory, and then? kind of everything stall. I mean, obviously the 50-50 in the Senate and Manchin and Cinema, the two Democratic senators kind of seem to have a lot of power in blocking the rest of the Build Back Better agenda. But what do you think happened and what do we do about it now to try to revive that uh, impactfulness he could have for the remaining of this year? I think, first of all, you just gave the the middle of, of President Biden's State of the Union address. <laughs> I mean, I, or maybe the maybe it's like kind of come in four parts. And I think the first part is he talks about the crisis in Ukraine. The second part is he talks about really, I think the last two years of COVID and so much of our society being locked down, which was the last year of Trump and the friend, his own first year. And having the speech come in March really makes on the second anniversary. And he talks about what, what he got accomplished in the first year. I think the third part of the speech is talking about what he's proposing for the remainder of this year and the years ahead. And I think the conclusion is talking again about the survival of democracy, but not just the Ukraine crisis, but the larger question of democracy surviving in this country and surviving overseas. And I think he can weave in that at that point, the, the issues of voting rights, preserving the electoral process against attacks, the insurrection of a year ago and its aftermath, and the issue of equal justice and the nomination, his Supreme Court nomination, who he has said will be an African-American woman and who he may nominate what we know over the next few days. Mm -hmm. And then the conclusion about really that what's 
in our hands, you know, as important as it is to pass the elements of this agenda, and as important as it is to contain or defeat Russian aggression in Ukraine, that there's really the issue of whether we as a country are going to resolve to preserve democracy in our own country and defend it against autocrats overseas. And that's that's really it's in, that's really the essence of American political rhetoric is whether democracy, the democratic experiment is going to survive. If you look at the two, probably the two, with all, with all due respect, every other speech, probably the two best speeches that Americans are ever given, and the two best remembered ones are Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and Dr. King's Ira Green speech. And they're both about whether democracy can survive. Fantastic. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm heartsick that our country is in this position, and I'm excited that you have such a handle on that. Maybe you could write an op-ed uh, about, you know, if you were to write Biden's State of the Union address, what would be in it? Thank <laughs> give, you. give him some I ideas. Mean, I mean, everyone's doing that, or I guess everyone would have been doing that before Ukraine came along, and. I guess you I mean the mechanics of placing an op-ed is such that if you don't have a regular birch, it's unlikely you can get one, you know, in print or online before Tuesday morning. Right. Well, so, uh, I I really appreciate your your insights and and your wisdom on it. I wish you were in there now having a hand to help Biden not only with the speech, but with the agenda of what what needs to be done. I think he's a good man, and I think he's trying to deliver for the working people, and um, he's running into an awful lot of headwinds. Yeah. Um, so do you think if he did the kind of State of the Union address you're talking about in you know, this is the question of whether the American experiment in democracy will survive and address these issues. I, I might add in there some of the the economic pieces right. for right. people's, as I know you would and have done so brilliantly. Um, do you think that would help him uh, help the Democrats win in November, how do we avoid a bloodbath in this election as Democrats? Well, I think the more you raise the stakes, the more you drive up turnout on both sides. And at this point, the question isn't so much driving up turnout on the other side because they, they're all going to turn out. The question is dri driving up turnout on our side to the, to the level that we had it in 2020 and 2018. And I think raising the stakes and can do that. And then we're still dealing with a political, this being an off-year election, we're dealing with a political system where the deck is stacked against us. That I mean, Democrats almost in almost every election, whether we win or lose, our total vote for the House and Senate is more than the Republican vote for the House and Senate. But the Senate is just inherently stacked in favor of smaller states against larger states. So Alabama has as many senators as California. And the House is stacked in favor of 
rural areas against urban and close in suburban areas. So there too, if, if we only win the aggregate house vote by one or two points, we probably lost the house by double digit by 10 or 20 seats. So we got, we got, it's, it's like the other side, it's like a, a race where the other side starts out, the other runner starts out ahead of where we start out or their finish line is nearer than our finish line. So it, it, it's a, as Donald Trump would say, it's a rigged system, but what he doesn't understand or won't acknowledge as a system is rigged in favor of his supporters, not our supporters. Right. Well, I think, you know, being clear about the stakes is really uh, vital right now. And you wrote a fabulous book called Speaking American that became the rhetorical guidebook for the 1992 presidential campaign. And um, you discuss in that book about how to talk directly to people about issues and just say complicated issues, but don't talk down to people, just talk to people about what's happening. How would you speak American now to the American people about democracy? It, it seems to me a lot of people either don't seem to relate to democracy the way I do. Like I'm, I am heartsick about the January 6th insurrection, the fact that uh, Trump lied about consistently is like the big lie has persuaded so many people that Biden stole the election, which is no evidence for it, but now 40% of Americans believe the big lie. But a lot of other people don't seem to have the same resonance with the American democracy that I do. It's kind of like it's an abstract concept for people. What would you say in kind of a speaking American format, a message that the American people could hear and resonate with? That, that's the question. I, I, in terms of speaking American, I, I was flattered. I don't know how many people read this, and I may have been the only person who noticed this particular line, but David Axelrod, who was President Obama's brilliant media advisor, had an op-ed last week in the New York Times where he advises President Biden on what to say in the, in the State of the Union speech. And toward the end of the op-ed, he says that President Biden should not sound too bureaucratic. He should not sound, you know, the whole litany of things that you rightly say someone shouldn't sound. And he says that the good thing about President Biden is that it, at his best, he speaks American. And that, that phrase leaped off the screen for me, and I was very flattered. And I think it's forgetting about the reference to a book from 30 years ago. It, I think it does describe President Biden at his best. I think what is sort of frustrating and confusing for someone like me who has, you know, tr tries to have progressive politics and believes in the importance of plain talk is that I think President Biden's major speeches, and I'd say they've been, if my arithmetic is right, four of them in the past year and, you know, for about 14, 14 months, so the inaugural, the joint session speech last year, the January 6th speech, 
and the voting rights speech, which was very much attacked, but I think it was attacked because it, it was a good speech and it drew blood. I think they are all very effective speeches. I think they all do what, what you're rightly urging the president to do, to talk both about the preservation of democracy and government delivering a better, better opportunities and for, for people. And, and I think it does it, they do it as David Axelrod said, by speaking American. So the question is why, when he's speaking American and saying the right things in the right ways, why isn't he being heard better and moving more people? And a few things come to mind. First of all, I think that certainly compared to, the, to President Clinton when I worked for him, and probably compared to any president since Clinton, Joe Biden is the first president I think has been underexposed rather than overexposed. I think if you're talking about his major speeches on domestic issues, those four come to mind. And until he gives a State of the Union on Tuesday, it's hard to think of what the fifth is. I mean, he's given policy announcements from the White House. He's gone places and pointed to accomplishments or possibilities with the infrastructure program and other programs. But I think compared to, compared to every president from Bill Clinton to Donald Trump, he's underexposed. He doesn't speak that often. I think when he speaks, he speaks well, but he doesn't speak that often. I think the second thing is just the cacophony of events and disinformation mm -hmm. and misinformation and lies and hatred and incitement on social media and on right-wing media can drown out can drown out a quiet voice of reason like President Biden's, even if that quiet voice of reason is speaking in down to earth and respectful in terms. And I think the third is just oppressive events. We consider that in, that we've gone through a pandemic, an economic lockdown, an insurrection, the police brutality and the racial, the incidents of police brutality and the racial reckoning that has resulted from it, all kinds of social and cultural conflict, and now an international crisis that in some ways is probably at least the worst crisis in Europe since the Berlin Wall and maybe since World War II, and this is all happening at once in the aftermath of the most polarizing presidency since the Civil War. Mm -hmm. It's a lot for a quiet man like Joe Biden to get to break through and with the voice of reason. Yeah, I, I think it's hard for almost anyone to break through these days. Um, but I, I was thinking about it. Uh, I know you mentioned David Axelrod, who helped run President Obama's campaign for presidency. But there's also the other David Pluff right. wrote a book about the 2020 election advisor. He didn't know then who the Democratic right. candidate would be, but he said, this is what the Democrats need to do to win. One of the things that David Pluff recommended was that people stop relying on the Democratic Party as their megaphone right. and spokesperson, that we're actually at a point now where each person can become a communications center. And that you can get on Twitter and Facebook and you can put up videos and get that spread around. And he, he said this could be 
the most significant thing that the average citizen can do is become your own communication center and put out mostly positive messages about your team, your side, your candidate, with some exposure about some of the lies and misinformation that's out there. I thought that was a great insight and, and a way to engage more people who kind of feel like they're left out of a political process. What do you think? I think that's exactly right. And I think, I mean, I think certainly Twitter is very, and other social media are very important. And to the extent that people on our side of the fence can just go out there and make their points and do it every day, that's, that's a good thing. I think we've, we learned, among other things, with, the, with, Joe, with Joe Biden being nominated for president and Eric Adams being nominated and elected, Joe Biden being nominated elected president, and Eric Adams being nominated and elected mayor of New York, and many other elections in which the center-left candidate beat the further-left candidates the nomination and then the right-wing candidates in the general election is that Twitter isn't America, that we need to tweet, but we need to do more than that. And one of, I think, many ways in which sort of the democratic process and social interaction broke down over the last few years is you can't, it's especially people on our side of the fence who are more careful of other people's health, we're reluctant to go door-to-door -door and canvas. And I think door-to-door -door canvassing is, is very, it's the oldest form of, one of the oldest forms of political communication and political organizing. It's, the, mm -hmm. it's sort of at the other end of the food chain from tweeting, but it's a way of reaching people who aren't self-confidently on, online and aren't in the Twitterverse. I think you reach more Biden and Adams voters by canvassing than you would reach by by tweeting. And I think that's important also. I think as the pandemic wears off and as people, particularly on our side of the fence, are fully vaccinated and more confident of their own health and more confident of other people's health, I think for people to go out and go door to door, whether it's issue-oriented canvassing that there's a group called, I'm sure you're familiar with them, called Working America, which is sponsored by the AFL-CIO, but which reaches out to people who are not represented by unions. They were the groups that came out of the Citizens Action Network of the 1970s and 80s. There are deep canvassing programs. I happen to have connected with one of them in Pennsylvania, but there's deep canvassing programs where they, people go door to door and try to have deep conversations with people, not just ask them to support a candidate or support some piece of legislation. The extent that people just go do old-fashioned politics, mm -hmm. go one-on-one, -on -one, door door-to-door, person-to-person, and not only spread the message, but listen to people and then respond to what they hear, I think there is a chance to break out and break through in a way that you certainly, we certainly don't do with a typical Democratic campaign, which is a bunch of TV spots in the last month. And you don't, we don't do it by talking to each other on Twitter, but by talking to other people that had very different experiences over the last few, year, few years with 
with the pandemic and with COVID and with the school shutdowns and so on. And really have had very different experiences from more visible and audible people over the last 20, 30, 40 years of economic stagnation and social breakdown in much of the country. If we, we talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, I think we can mobilize some people and change some minds that wouldn't have been mobilized or changed otherwise. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth there. Um, I do also think there's an underlying, um, I would say maybe animosity towards the Democratic Party now, particularly among the white working class. I would have seen in recent elections and the polling of just like taking a nosedive. What do you think is behind the animosity towards Democrats by uh, white working class voters? And what do you think could be done to re-engage them and have them come back to the Democratic Party? What, what? I, I, I'm remembering a line that the lesson I was taught by a man named PJ Champa, who was organizing director of AFSCME and played a role in all kinds of historic strikes and organizing campaigns that AFSCME was involved in from the Memphis sanitation workers strike to correct, you know, very different segment of society, correction officers in New York state. And he used to say, always put the worker between yourself and the argument, meaning you don't, you know, you don't go up to someone or write a leaflet for someone or reach out to someone in some way and say, here's why you should support AFSCME. You, re you reach out to them and say, you know, you haven't had a raise in three years. How can you get a raise? You try to, so you try to talk to people in terms of what they care about, not in terms of what you're trying to convince them of. And you make, you have what you can try to convince them of should flow from what they care about, not the other way around. And I think the, the, maybe not the Democratic Party as a party, but people who happen to be running for office on the Democratic Party line in the general election and movements that, you know, if they're not allied to the Democratic Party are seeking some of the social and economic goals that the Democratic Party stands for it at its best, that they need to go out, you know, literally and figuratively and talk to people who are angry and alienated listen to them, talk to them about what they care about and offer their solution, their cause, their candidate as an answer to what people care about. Instead of saying, you should be for this, this, and this, here's why, do it the other way around. Now, there's not a whole lot of time between now and November, but you know, the best time to do something that's long overdue is right now. It's going to be even less time a month from now and even <laughs> less time two months from now. So go out and do those things. There's organizations doing them. They need more people joining in. They need a greater reach beyond where they're already doing it. And, you know, while we have a deadline, an important deadline in November, the country won't be entirely won or entirely lost as of this November, there's going to be a November two years 
from that note from, the, from this November, mm -hmm. and we, we really need to start doing that again. And I think I think on the one hand, you can say the Democrats have done the a bunch of things wrong, and that's you know that's true. I mean, I'm proud to have worked for Bill Clinton, but I think NAFTA was a mistake. I think letting China into the international trading system without tougher conditions on China was a mistake. I think the repeal of Glass-Steagall, which is a wonky way of talking about letting banks run, go hit, run haywire without financial regulation was a mistake. And there were those errors of commission and also errors of omission of that litany of ideas that you read a few minutes ago from the Los Angeles Times that we should have done and we either didn't try or we didn't try hard enough, we didn't try the right way. But by the time we tried for them and thought about them, the time has passed when we could get them done. So people, it may, may not be, you know, the brand may be poisoned because we haven't done enough. There's some, some things we stand for that may not be popular, but we shouldn't walk away from. I mean, to the extent the Democratic Party stands for racial justice or gender justice or honest teaching in the schools, we're treating, treating people with respect to, you know, maybe easier not for some people not to treat them with respect. We can't walk away from that. But I think the historic way that the Democrats and progressives in this country have been able to do unpopular things has been also by doing popular things. And so if you're on people's side on five different things, and then you talk about to them about a sixth thing, they'll listen to you because they remember you're on the, their side on things that matter to them. You know, there's this, there's the history of how the AFL-CIO and the UAW were able to get white workers in Michigan to vote against George Wallace. They told people that George, that George Wallace's Alabama had low wages and no unions and bad schools and all kinds of other things that no one wanted. And at that time, unions had some credibility with white workers in Michigan because they had delivered for them. So they were going to listen to them. If instead of it, the, the AFL-CIO or the UAW, it had, someone had, who people had never heard of, had been saying the same things, they wouldn't have been listened to. But you get, if you do things that help people, you get credibility with them. And then they'll listen to you when you're doing things that may initially rub them the wrong way. Right. Um, so all true. And I love what you're talking about, the door-to-door -door connecting, communicating with people, find out what matters to them. And um, you mentioned the Working America is doing that. Also, Movement Voter Project is right. doing that and Swing States doing fabulous. Right. And they keep going. They don't just show up at election time. Right. They, That's very important. Very important. They keep going year year round year after year, building relationships in the community, building trust and finding out who people are and what they want. So I think it's a fantastic model. I'm glad those people are doing it. I hope they uh, they grow enormously because they can really turn elections, particularly in those swing states. So we just have a minute or two left. And I know it's maybe too late for you to write an, an op-ed on advising for the State of the Union address coming up, but if you could take one minute now, we'll do a little clip. I know there are people in the Biden administration who uh, advised him on the campaign and now who listen to this show. So if you had 
one or two minutes to say, how would you uh, speak American? Like, how would you shape your message to the American people around this battle between democracy and authoritarianism in a way that, that speaks American that people could relate to? There's a great phrase that Franklin D. Roosevelt used when he was fighting the economic royalists in this country. And that, that was his phrase, economic royalists, which speaks American because it goes all the way back to the American Revolution. And then when he was fighting fascism overseas, and he said that Americans don't like people who push other people around. And pushing other people around is probably a mild phrase to describe injustice in this country, much less fascism in, in Germany and Italy and Japan. But I think it's, it spoke to, I think, a basic American instinct that against bullying, that you know the, the big guy shouldn't push the little guy around. They, John, John Kennedy had a more ele elevated way of saying it. He said he wanted a world where the strong adjust and the weak are secure. Mm -hmm. That was basically the same idea. Mm -hmm. I think President Biden used that today when he was talking when in, in, in his address to the country about the Ukraine crisis. And I think it's, I, I think certainly if you've been around as long as Joe Biden has been, you don't want to come before the people and start to, speaking in a different way than they've heard you speak before. You just want to speak in the best way you've spoken before. Mm -hmm. And I think if the President Biden and the people advising him, I think if they just go through what, what Americans have heard him say over the past two years, look at the inaugural, look at the speech, the joint session of Congress last year, where as someone counted up, he used the word jobs, 43 times, which is a, a good word to use 43 times. Look at the speech he gave about the, on the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection and pick out the parts of it that as David Axelrod said, speak American and build a speech around that kind of language and include echoes of what Franklin Roosevelt said about Americans not liking people who have pushed other people around include echoes of what Abraham Lincoln said in Gettysburg about the survival of democracy by the government of the people by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth. I think if, if they echo some of the best of what this president has said and other presidents have said, I think they'll do well. Fantastic. That's all the time we have. David Cousinet, thank you so much for being with us today.